It was a year and a few months ago. Melanie and I, along with other of our fellow ministers in Washington State at that time, were called to one of the minister's homes. There were several of us, our several of us, in our home congregation in Washington State. And the minister that is next younger than I, very dear family, very dear friend, just a few years younger than I, his wife, a very special woman, a very uh, vibrant and hospitable and outgoing sister in the church, was dying of cancer. We gathered there in that home, and their five children gathered around, including the littlest child, which must be held because she's very, very handicapped. As we gathered around, Heather had requested that she would be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord, according to the word of God. And she had a radiant testimony that night. She said, I can think of a lot of things I would like to do here. It was looking like she was in her last weeks. Her mind was very clear. But she said, it sounds pretty good to go home too, to heaven. She had a radiant smile and released her will to God's will. And it was my responsibility that night to anoint her with oil. A few months later, we laid her casket in the grave and she went home to be with the Lord Jesus. She was ready. She was ready. Tonight, the question is, Are you ready? And tonight the lesson is from the Apostle Paul, this last and fourth chapter division of his second and final letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. We want to title this message tonight, Last Words, I'm Ready. Last Words, I'm Ready. As we've looked at this letter, Paul's last words, just perhaps a few months or even weeks, perhaps even days, we do not know. Before, he went to the executioner's sword to have his head removed, and he went to be to glory to be with the Lord Jesus. He stated to Timothy as he wrote this last letter, I'm ready. We want to look at that tonight in This last chapter, as we've looked at chapter one on Monday night, we talked about Paul's last words, I'm not ashamed. And we talked about a faith father and a fire fanner and a sense of eternal purpose in our lives and being an unashamed soldier. In the second chapter on Tuesday night, we talked about the last words of Paul, son, be strong, Son, be strong. And and we focused on being strong in grace and being approved unto God and being vessels unto honor. Last night, as we looked at chapter three, we talked about some of Paul's last words in this letter, perilous waters, perfect tools, perilous waters. And we talked about last day's warnings and last day's attitudes and Last day's religion and, and a last day's tool chest. 
Tonight, as we conclude this letter, we want to talk about these last words with this heading, I'm ready. I'm ready. As we look at this last chapter tonight, in verses 1 through 5, I would like to have this heading, a charge before the judge. A charge before the judge. And then in verses 6 through 9, I'd like to think about confidence in the crown. Confidence in the crown. And then as we look at section number 3, verses 10 through 21, I'd like to talk about Paul, the man. Paul, the man. Then in the final area tonight, in the last verse, designation of this letter, Paul's last words, verse 22, section number 4 tonight, I'd like to talk about a final appeal to attitude. Final appeal to attitude. Last words. I'm ready. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. O Lord, our gracious, glorious, heavenly Father, we come tonight in the name of your Son, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, we remember that he told us that if we ask you anything in his name, And according to your will that you will hear and that you will respond and that you will do it. And so we come tonight, Lord, boldly asking, coming to the throne of grace, asking that you would meet with us tonight. Father, in this place, you know the needs of each one that is here. You know the needs of your servant. Lord, you've given us a rich treasure, but we carry it around in very earthen vessels. Tonight, this vessel feels pretty earthen, but... May the excellency of the power be of you and not of us. And Father, I pray that your word would flow through your servant tonight. You would cleanse my heart and mind and tongue to preach your word faithfully. And would you open the hearts, Father, and, and would you take away anything that would hinder tonight, anything that the adversary, the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy your word. Lord, I pray that you would... You would uh, Bruise the thief underfoot tonight as his head has been crushed by the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that tonight he would have no advantage in this room, but rather that the word of the Lord would have free course. Lord, you know the needs of the young people, these young brothers and young sisters. You know the needs of the older ones that are here as well, the parents and visitors and various ones that are here. Lord, in your own marvelous way, you're able to break bread And feed everyone, even with just a few loaves and a few fish. So would you do that tonight? Would you edify your church, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you again that last words of loved ones are always important. They're always important. And in this second letter, we have the apostles' last words that we have recorded for us tonight. I want to remind you to look for the themes that we've talked about in this chapter, in this book, in this letter. In this final writing, the apostle is giving his, as I've said it, his urgent exhortation to continue to stir the fire, to stand strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, to not be ashamed, to defend the faith, to hold on to the scripture 
and to preach the word and to pass on the, the stewardship of truth to others who will then pass it on to others as well. Those are some of the themes that we see here in the second letter of the apostle to Timothy. He's in his last imprisonment. I've reviewed that. I think each time the apostle had at least a couple of imprisonments in Rome. His first imprisonment was, was more of a house arrest, more of a parole type situation. In the last chapter of Acts, we read how Paul met with many different people. He had guests at his home. It said he dwelt in his own hired house and he received different ones and was able to talk with them. But this is the second arrest, the second imprisonment shortly before his death. Now he's probably in a dungeon, not quite so pleasant, perhaps chained to some soldiers. He speaks of the man that was not ashamed of his chain, as you recall. So now it's not so pleasant, but he's still writing. He's still caring about the church. And we have a final message to consider about this tonight. I'm ready. I'm ready. Would you stand with me and let's read 2 Timothy chapter 4. I would like you to join me in reading verse 2, verse 6, 7, and 8, and verse 22. Verse 2, verse 6, 7, and 8, and verse 22. I'll let you read when we get to those verses. So read. I, want, I like to encourage, and I think I'll encourage tonight. You've been doing very well. But I like to encourage when we read God's word, we do like it speaks of in the Old Testament. I think it was Ezra. It says he stood on a pulpit of wood, and, and he read distinctly and gave the sense, and he caused the people to understand what was read. That's the way we should read. I just encourage you to lift up your, your head, just like when you sing, project your voice. It's the word of God. It's worth speaking clearly. Read distinctly, give the sense, and cause the people to understand by the way you read what we're talking about. So let's read together. Remember verse 2, 6, 7, and 8, and verse 22 will be yours to read. Let's begin. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Do thy diligence to come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. And Tychicus have I sent to Ephesus. The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus. When thou comest, bring with thee, 
and the books, but especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The the Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou greatly ware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greeteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. Amen. Remain standing for just a moment. I appreciate your reading of the Word of God tonight, and I just feel like. Uh, glorifying our Lord Jesus tonight in song as we begin. I'd like to just sing with you a, a very familiar chorus. It's, it's to the tune of, of O Come All Ye Faithful, just the chorus, O Come Let Us Adore Him. But let's sing first, For He Alone Is Worthy. And then we'll sing, We'll Give Him All the Glory. And then we'll sing, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Each time we'll raise it a half a step. For He Alone Is Worthy. We'll give him all the glory. Oh, come, let us adore him. Sing with me. For he alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. For he alone is worthy. Christ the Lord will give him all the glory, will give him all the glory, will give him all the glory, Christ the Lord. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We give him all the glory tonight. He is the Savior. He is the one who came down. He is the word who was made flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see what it looks like. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. And as we pattern after him, may our lives also reflect the same thing. Lives of Christians redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, full of grace and truth. Those two are both important. 
They're not exclusive one of another. They're not in competition with each other. They perfectly met together in Jesus Christ. I think that hymn we sang, when I survey the the wondrous cross, did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown, so much found itself centered in Jesus Christ and grace and truth met together there at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Tonight, the apostle, once that reality hit him, once he was marching on the road to Damascus, breathing out, the Bible says, threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He was one angry man. He was frothing mad, mad at these Christians. How dare them stand up and, and rise up against our religious understandings, the traditions of our fathers. Paul was, he didn't like it. He was zealous. He had been trained from a young man in, in the Old Testament scriptures. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He knew what he wanted. He knew what he believed and he was going after it full force. And when he heard about this opposing sect rising up, he had nothing to do with it. He was going to engage full speed in stamping this thing out. And the Bible says he breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? Just remember, if you run into someone that breathes out threatenings and slaughter, they just might be an Apostle Paul in the future if they experience the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kind of man he was. But remember, that light struck him down on the way to Damascus when he was going there with letters from the high priest to to bind men and women and commit them to prison. That light struck him down. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And here's this, this energetic, zealous, religious man on the ground, on the road. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? You remember the answer? Paul recounted his testimony. Some of you mentioned that this week several times. When he recounted that before Agrippa, he said, the voice said, I am Jesus. That's who I am. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus. And Paul's life was never the same after that. Paul committed himself with all the more zeal in a different direction, this time for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And a few days later, there was a man by the name of Ananias who got a message from God. He said, there's a man over here. I I want you to go baptize him. I want you to go meet with him. There's, There's Saul over there, Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias said, like we do sometimes, wait a minute, Lord, Uh, have I let you in on who he is? Do you think God needs to be let in on anything? God knew exactly who he was. This man, I've heard about this man. And God said, Ananias, go your way. He's a chosen vessel unto me. He's a chosen vessel unto me. And then I love Ananias' response. You can read it there in Acts. He went and he laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. That's a changed heart. Ananias said, Lord, I've heard about this man. A couple hours later, he says, Brother Saul, the Lord. Even Jesus has sent me to you. Now we have Saul. He's ran his race like an athlete. He's coming to the end, the final words of this letter, and we want to look at it tonight. We want to look at it tonight. Last words, I'm ready. I'm ready. The first area we want to look at, I've 
I put this heading over it, a charge before the judge in verses 1 through 5. Let's look here again. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Paul says, Timothy, I'm giving you a charge. Now, a charge, friends, tonight is a very serious thing. This word charge means to attest earnestly. It's a very serious testimony. It's a commission. It's kind of like giving military orders. Some of his last words, I charge you, Timothy. Now, Paul had given charges before. I'm just going to remind you real quickly of some of the other charges he had already given to Timothy. You don't have to turn to them. I've got them jotted down here in my notes in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He gave him a charge to faithful warfare. A charge to faithful warfare. He said, this charge I commit unto you, son Timothy. This was in his first letter. According to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Charge. The charge to faithful warfare. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, the charge to avoid partiality. I want you to get the weight of a charge tonight. I want you to think... To notice this theme through both letters of Timothy, of Paul, leaving charges to, to this young elder. This one that he said, I have no man like-minded like him. This one that he loved so dearly. This one he had traveled together with. This one that, that, that he had spent many hours and much time with. He left charges. The second one I, I want to notice is in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the charge to avoid partiality. He told Timothy, Timothy... Against an elder, don't receive an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. But then that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. And he goes on and says, I charge you, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. That's quite a charge. Before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you do these things, you observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. That's the charge to avoid partiality. There was another charge to flee, follow, and fight in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, patience, meekness, uh, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Oh, beloved, just, just grasp that even as we just quote these verses about charges. Lay hold on eternal life. There is something that's called eternal life and it's a gift from our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's available, but we have to lay hold on it. Lay hold on eternal life and don't ever let loose of it. Lay hold on eternal life. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto also thou art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the charge to flee, follow, and fight. Finally, I want to point out the charge to avoid useless arguments. We talked about it Tuesday night in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Tonight, we have another charge. Look for that theme of the charges, the charge to faithful warfare, the charge to avoid partiality, the charge to flee and follow and fight, the charge to avoid useless arguments. And now tonight, another charge, a charge before the judge 
to preach the word. A charge before a judge. He said, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew what he was doing. He was giving this young man marching orders, military orders. This is serious, Timothy. I'm charging you. I'm leaving you a commission, a responsibility. I'm solemnly attesting and committing to you this responsibility before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Quick means alive. That's what it means. Sometimes some of you who have Amish background know more about this than I do. Maybe you would trim a horse's hooves and, and if you get into the quick, get into the tender part, the horse will jump. That's the life. So when you think of quick, the quick and the dead, it's kind of an old English term that we don't use today, but in the, in the uh, King James Bible, when we read about the quick and the dead, it's those that are alive and those that are dead. It isn't going to matter. It's going to happen. He's going to judge the live and the dead at his appearing and his, king, and his kingdom. We're going to speak more about his appearing before this message is over, Lord willing. The quick and the dead. This is a charge before a judge. And he says here, preach the word. Preach the word. I want you to think a little bit about this reality, this responsibility, this charge to preach the word. I remember a few years ago when the weight of that hit me even more strongly. I began to preach more expositorily than I had in the past. I feel like I was always taught to preach the word, and that's always been my desire, but I want to encourage you, as you live your lives, your lives also preach. Sometimes we say that our words speak, but our lives shout. Our lives are preaching along with our words, but, but that we preach the word. And I want to continue to encourage that we love the, the text of the scripture, not just for the knowledge of it, but for the the application of it, for the life of it, for the reality of it. And so read the whole word of God. And there's something about tackling a book of the Bible that you can't just spend all your life going to favorite passages. When you read through, and and I encourage reading the entire word of God. I encourage that. It's been my pattern for years to read some in the Old Testament and usually somewhere else in the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, some of the poetic books, and then some in the New Testament every day. Read the whole Bible. It's very valuable. And we want to, if we, if we know the Bible, then we can preach the Bible. Preach the Word. The Word. The instant. In season, out of season, and so forth. I want to talk about that a little bit. Preach the Word. That means to herald and proclaim the divine truth. And included in that tonight, I want to make sure I've said it clearly, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We read about it as Matthew begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how it starts out. Malachi ends, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's the end of the Old Testament. 400 years later, When the fullness of time was come, as Paul said in Galatians, we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Gospel is glad tidings. It's good news. And tonight, let's keep it good news. It is good news. Let's preach it. Let's proclaim it. Let's share it as we have the opportunity. It's the gospel. And Paul summarizes it one place in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I was preached unto you, which you have heard and and which you've also believed. And And he summarizes real simple. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's like a little summary of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, brethren, I declare the gospel. There it is. We, we go other places. We speak of like little summaries of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Do you see the heart of God? Does God want anyone to perish? No, it's not his will that any would perish. It shouldn't be ours either. Certainly not my will tonight that any would perish. No one needs to perish. God so loved the world. Did you get that word so? Two letters. Say it with me. So. Say it again. So. God so loved the world. It doesn't just say it would be enough if it said that God loved the world. But that's not what it says. It says God so loved the world. And we use that phrase, I know, sometimes uh, in our talk, this is like, oh, he is just so this, or, or, or that was so her to, to do it. We kind of use those phrases now, now, nowadays. But, but think about God. This was so God to love the world. He so loved the world that he gave himself, his only begotten son. That whosoever, who's that leave out? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it's not complicated. It's not a complicated path. The people on the day of Pentecost that were convicted when Peter preached and said, you are responsible for crucifying this Holy One. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And they believed, first of all, this message. First of all, they believed. And Peter had a simple response. He said, repent. Repent. That means acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior and turn from your sin. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise, the promise, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off. Once again, who does this leave out? The promise is unto you and it's unto your children. These little children in this church here, what a blessing. I've been enjoying watching one of them every morning. The promise is to her, and it's to all the children, and to all that are afar off. Afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Save yourselves from this untoward generation. The gospel tonight is not complicated. I want to make sure that that is clear in our hearts. I believe it is, but I just felt a responsibility to to share that. Well, tonight we're looking at this First area in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a charge before a judge. It's before a judge. It's Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. To preach is to herald and proclaim divine truth. I've appreciated this thought for many years. An elder brother, um, I I recall sharing it like this, that as as he was kind of comparing the, the difference in preaching and teaching, they're both necessary. They're both biblical. And, and sometimes we can't even discern which we're doing. But, but he said, teaching 
is instructing the mind. Preaching is moving the will. And we need them both. We need to instruct the mind and we need to move the will. When we preach, we are urging. We are speaking. And and Paul told Timothy, I'm charging you, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. And he goes on, be instant. That word instant means be on hand, be available. One of the brothers talked about, I think one of your ministers here spoke about just a a memory that that there were just some brothers that you could count on them, some sisters being on hand, just being available when work was needed to be done. Others you could kind of count on, uh, 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 let's see, yeah, let's talk about, I, I don't know. Maybe there were times that was me. But be instant. It means be ready. Be on hand is literally what it means. Be instant. Ready at all times, whether it's convenient or not. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, he goes on to say. But let's think about being in season or out of season. That, that, that commission, this charge in God's word has been very prompting to me a number of times when it seemed pretty out of season. It's just not in season, not now. I, I don't feel ready. I don't feel prepared. I, I'm tired. I have other duties, whatever it might be. But I want to encourage you, my young brother and young sister as well, all of us, be instant, be on hand, in season and out of season. It's a mindset. It's a commitment of my will to God. Lord, when you call, I'm going to be there. If you start becoming a sniffle Christian, I can't go because I've got the sniffles. There's no end to that. That will just grow. I've watched it grow in people. I've watched people start down that road. And pretty soon they start missing this and that and the other for little things that become big. Don't do it. Be instant, in season, out of season. Be on hand. Be committed. Preach the word. Herald and proclaim divine truth. Well, he goes on and says, reprove. We've talked about that earlier in this letter. It means to convict or admonish. Rebuke, that's something a little stronger. It means to straightly charge. It means to forbid or to censure or to admonish. There's a place for that. Preach the word, Paul told Timothy. Timothy might have been a a gentler personality. We're all cut out and made different. But we all have, I believe, on some level, this charge. One way or another, reprove, rebuke. And exhort. To exhort is to call to a person. It's to entreat. It's more of a sense of inviting. It it, it is a prompting, but it's an invitation. And you know, I love that passage in Hebrews, and I think we need it. I need it. It says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. There are some people who are doing that. They've stopped assembling. The manner of some is to do that. Is, is to stop kind of back off on, on assembling together with other believers. But we need believers. He says, but rather, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Exhorting, we need exhortation. And so he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Another place in Hebrews, it says, exhort one another. How often? Daily. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I've wondered. There have been a number of times in my life where faithful brothers around me or sisters have exhorted me in one way or another, just a call, just a a call. Maybe it wasn't because of a particular problem, but just a call. And, you know, you stop and think about, is it possible that I didn't realize it, but I was slightly hardening 
slightly hardening. Through what? Through the, through the obvious signs of sin? That's not what it says. It says through the deceitfulness of sin. Through the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe just a little bit hardening. But when we exhort, when we exhort one another, it's lest. Apparently that possibility exists. Lest any of you would be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So Paul says, Timothy, I'm charging you, preach the word. Be instant, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, with patience, with care, caring about people. You know, the apostle to the church at Thessalonica, I believe it, he says, brethren, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls. That's what I see when I see long suffering. I see care. I see the relationship that one of the brothers talked about. Our own souls, not just the gospel, but our own souls. You have a friend or a neighbor, someone down the road, someone here in the community of Kelowna or wherever you live. I encourage you to impart the gospel, but not the gospel only, also your own soul. That means a little bit of who you are. That's a little bit personal. Maybe it means having them over for supper. Maybe it means stopping by and start stopping by again and and caring about their lives a bit. That's your own soul. That's imparting not the gospel of God only, but also your own soul. And and that's what I see when he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Doctrine's important. Doctrine is teaching. We have the word of God. This whole letter has upheld and upheld and upheld and upheld and upheld the Bible, the word of God. We concluded last night in chapter 3. Of course, these chapter divisions didn't exist when Paul wrote the letter. I reminded you that they didn't come along until about the 1200s AD. Someone added chapter divisions to the text, and it's helpful to find our place. Verses were a couple hundred years after that. And so it just read right on through. It, it was all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. It all went together and it goes together tonight. Can you see the blessing of the word of God? Doctrine, it's here. It's the word of God. All long-suffering and doctrine. It's forbearance and teaching. You know, sometimes there's a temptation, especially in tough times, maybe to fear being misunderstood or, or fear being categorized. Have you ever had that? I, I don't want someone to, to just categorize me as this kind of person or that kind of person. We can all wrestle with that. I can even wrestle with that coming here. We can have those human feelings that I, I, I'm afraid someone might categorize me a certain way or, or misunderstand, but... When we preach the word, we don't have to fear those things. We can reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. We want to fear the Lord and not man and be jealous of the truth at any cost. He goes on to say, for the time is coming. And this is our first point here tonight, a charge before the judge. The time will come, he says, when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who's they? Does it include anyone here? Is there anyone here that's getting just a little tired of sound doctrine? I hope not. But Paul was clear about it. Remember, last night we we saw that. In the last days, he told Timothy, perilous waters are going to come. Perilous times, dangerous times, raging times. And in these times, people are not going to endure. Just means they're flat, not going to put up with it. Sound doctrine. Ah, I don't need that stuff. Sound doctrine. How do you know if doctrine is sound? 
That word sound means well and healthy and free from mixture and, and, and uh, without flaw or defect or de decay. Sound. Something sound, it's solid. It's not going to break. Sound doctrine, that's what we want. Paul said there's coming a time when people won't put up with sound doctrine. What about you? Sound doctrine. I, here's a few thoughts I wrote down a couple of years ago. I'm going to share them with you, maybe about 10 points. How can I know if doctrine is sound? I wrote, number one, prove all things. That's what the Bible says. Prove, examine, prove. The Bible says, put, it, put something to the test. If you hear a teaching, put it to the test. Prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, prove. And Paul goes on in, in Corinthians and he says, he that is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is judged of no man. It's an interesting discussion. There, there's a time to prove something. Don't just buy things. How do I know if doctrine is sound? Number one, prove. Number two, recognize. Recognize that truth is truth from any source. If it's true, then it's true. However, the goal of its use may be different. And also be aware of a, a lack of full truth or, or a mixture with the truth. So sometimes we hear something that's profoundly true, but it's maybe from a source that's using that truth in a little different direction. I want to complicate it, but I, I'm thinking about sound doctrine tonight. A third point is, as I think about sound doctrine, I think it's important to also recognize the Bible does say to rejoice when Christ is preached. I, I, even if it's for wrong motives, I want to rejoice when Christ is preached. At least they're not preaching Joseph Smith or, or some kind of watchtower propaganda or the God of nature or Buddha or or uh, satanic voodoo, or Hinduism, or animism. At least there's a, a verbal acknowledgement of Christ, the source of life and the Word of God, and then an earnest seeker has a chance. They have a chance to turn to the living Word. And so we do want to rejoice when Christ is preached. The fourth point I have just thinking about sound doctrine a little bit is, is the Word itself. The Bible speaks about comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We need the balance of the Word of God. There's an engineering term called tension. Sometimes truths or, or, or things are held in tension and it keeps them in balance. Without one, the one would go off. But together, they're held in tension. There are some scriptural truths like that. They're both equally true, but, but they're kind of held in, shall we say, in tension. They're, they're held in balance. So we compare spiritual things with spiritual, the Bible says. A fifth point is prayer and meditation and listening to the inner teaching of the Spirit. John says in, in 1 John that that the Spirit of God is able to teach you. Jesus said, the, I'm going to send the Comforter and He's going to bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I've told you. The Spirit of God is able to teach, but we need to pray and we need to meditate and ponder and ruminate and consider when we're thinking about sound doctrine. Another point I like to think about when I'm, I'm considering is this sound doctrine. I, I'd like to look at the life fruit of who's preaching it, of who's teaching this teaching. What's their life fruit look like? That may give me some clues as to whether the doctrine is sound or not. Uh, what about the life fruit of those who are under that teaching? Those who are, are, are listening to that teaching. And, and uh, again, I'm not talking about having a judgmental or critical spirit. I'm talking about being jealous of sound doctrine and, and considering the life fruit of those that are, are normally under that teaching. That, that might give me some clues also. Uh, the discernment of godly fathers. Paul told the Corinthian church, he said, You're, you folks are, you seem pretty glad to, to receive teachers. He kind of scolded them a little bit. He said, when we come, you, you kind of uh, brush us off. You don't want to talk to us, but it seems like you'll take people 
Uh, we don't ask a thing of you. And you take these other men and they rob you and they plunder you and you listen to them. He said, I'm telling you, brethren, though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. And so look at the discernment of godly fathers. It's one thing to have instructors in Christ, but what about fathers? Those that re- a father cares. A father gives not only teaching, but their own soul also. So we're talking about sound doctrine here just a little bit, just a few thoughts. Another point I like to consider is I call it the time test. I remember in 1988, there was a book that came out that was very popular, and I'm not going to say God can't use something like this, but it was 88 reasons why the Lord is going to come in 1988, and it didn't happen. He didn't come in 1988. Some of you remember that book, I'm sure. But what about the time test? Is it standing the test, this teaching, this doctrine? And a a tenth and final point I'd like to mention is the fountainhead. Is it it a, a true fountain or is it mingled? You know, James has something to say about that. He's talking about the tongue. He said, brother, no, no fountain gives both salt, water, and fresh. You can't trust a fountain like that. If you went up to a drinking fountain out here, and one time when you got a drink, it was, whew, that was salty or that was bitter water. And the next time it was good and fresh, you'd probably start not trusting that fountain. That's called a, a mixed fountain. And so we're, we're interested in sound doctrine because Paul said, Timothy, there's a time coming when people aren't going to endure. They won't put up with sound doctrine. We're interested in in that which is sound. It's fit, true, uncorrupt, and firm, and solid, and whole. Healthy, well, free from mixture, flaw, defect, or decay. Sound doctrine. After their own lusts, he goes on to say, and I want to hurry on here. They're going to heap teachers which have itching ears and, and seek to accumulate. That word heap, that's what it means. It means to accumulate. It's to seek additional Heap teachers. Isn't that quite a phrase? Isn't that kind of descriptive for our last times? I mean, seriously, think about it. It it kind of gets me even right now. After their own lusts, shall they heap teachers. Accumulation of gobs and gobs of teachers. But the teachers, he says, have itching ears. Is it the teacher or the people? I'll leave that up to you. But the itching ears are are ears that kind of want to hear what they want to hear. I think it's the people. Itching ears, which shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Books, blog posts, seminars, emails, opinions, you know, Satan's original method, clear back in the beginning, as he began to question God's word. He, you remember what he said? You remember that his, first, uh, his first little trick at God's word? He, he came up and he said, uh, Yea, hath God said, hath God said, that you shall, isn't that what he does? He, he just sows a little doubt. He sows a little doubt. Started with a woman. Has God said? That, uh, and she said, well, yeah. She started kind of reasoning with him. Be careful. Be, uh, just sowing a little doubt. We're interested in sound doctrine. We don't want to heap teachers that have itching ears. And I think there's a great need in our day for spiritual discernment. Spiritual discernment. I'm calling you, young people, in this generation, 2019, the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, 2019, to be filled with spiritual discernment. And I'll tell you how you can do that. It's to love the truth, love the word of God, and be men and women of prayer, and exhort each other, and love sound doctrine. You can be men and women of spiritual discernment. You know, good people lose their discernment. There's false things out there sometimes. I, 
I don't like to dwell on this too much, but I want to be faithful. I think about an old man one time who was laying in bed. And he heard, bless me, Father, bless me. And, and, and he reached out and, and he felt the arm of his son. He said, well, the voice is the voice of Jacob's. But, but the arms feel like Esau. Jacob put a goat's here, his mother did, on his arm. Remember that? The Bible says of Isaac that he discerned him not. He discerned him not because there was a trick. Oh, I, I pray that in our generation, we will sharpen our spiritual discernment. I don't mean have a critical spirit. I don't like critical spirits. I think that's most unwelcome. But I think discernment is most needed, most needed in our day. And, and God grant us discernment. He goes on. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time is coming, they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust, they're going to heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, which shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But he goes on and says, but watch thou in all things. Watch thou, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist and make full proof of thy ministry. Watch. I want to highlight that word before we go on. Watch. The, the Greek word there is nepho. And it, it means just that. It means literally, it has to do with a, a soberness. In fact, the literal word means to abstain from wine. That's what it means. It means to not be drunk. It means to be alert. Watch thou. Don't get drunk with all the teachers and with all the ideas. Don't get intoxicated with pleasures and sports arenas and fascinating but mind-clogging clips and uh, fashion and fine food and health fads and frivolous activities of all sorts. He says, watch, Nepho, don't be drunk. Don't. There's, there's a lot more that can, can cause us to lose our discernment, our ability to watch clearly than just alcohol. There's a lot of things people can get drunk with. Watch. Final words of a soldier of Jesus Christ before he goes to his death. Watch, Timothy. Young men, watch. Sisters, watch. Nepho, don't be drunk with anything that would cause you to lose your discernment and your love for sound doctrine. Watch in all things. Endure afflictions and do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is one who heralds the good news. An evangel. Do that work. Notice it's work. I think our brother said this morning, as he spoke about being a servant, I think he, he referred to that scripture that says, if any man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's work, and we need to look at it that way. That's I noticed that here. Paul says, do the work of an evangelist. It's not always easy. It, it's hard work to make that extra effort. And, and I don't know, people are cut out differently. I'm not naturally one that just likes to confront people. I like to get along with people. I enjoy people. But the day before we left Mexico, there were three different situations that Melanie and I knew that we needed to make contact with, at least a little contact, at least a little bit of contact. One man had actually told us, stop by, stop by, and we hadn't done it, and I couldn't come here with a clear conscience till we did it. So we took him a little Bible story book and some cookies, and he wasn't home, but I talked to his children We'll try to, and told him, we'll, we'll try to come and visit when we get back. Another neighbor we needed to stop in on. And a barber. 
I cut my hair at home for years until we went to Mexico. I had one of those things that you hook up to a vacuum. But it didn't go along to Mexico, so now I'm using a barber, a little man around the road. And he's a rough character. He's a rapper. He plays music in nightclubs at night. But, you know, Frankie and I have kind of got acquainted. And he asked me things. And, and the week before we, we left, he said, uh, you read the Bible? And I said, yeah. Have you ever read the Bible, Frankie? Yeah, a little bit. But I don't have one anymore. I lost it. I told Melanie, we can't leave without taking him a Bible, a Spanish Bible. So I walked right in the barber shop in front of all the, his buddies, and, and I said, Frankie, here's a Bible. He said, thank you, and we left. But it, my point is, I failed so many times, but he says, do the work of an evangelist. It's not going to be convenient. It's work to reach out to your, your neighbor. And I think, and, and I love our, our heritage of blessing in our churches, and you know what I'm talking about here in America, but I think if there's anything that we need to be challenged, it's when thou makest a dinner or supper, don't call your rich neighbors or your friends. Brothers, there's a place to reach out and invite the neighbor. And it's work. It's not easy. Sometimes it's challenging or to stop in and maybe take them something. God bless you. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry, Paul says. And that is point number one tonight, a charge before the judge. Make full proof of your ministry. Let's consider, we, we must hurry on. Let's look at Paul's confidence in the crown. Verses six through nine. Confidence in the crown is what we've called the second section. For I'm now ready to be offered, the apostle said, when the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Confidence in the crown. I'm ready. That sister, younger than me, beautiful, vibrant, hospitable sister in our church, the wife of one of our ministers, she said, well, it would be nice to stay here, but it'd also be nice to go home. I'll leave it up to God. And she went home. She left five children and a husband. By the grace of God, he's doing well. A few years ago, Melanie's older sister got sick one day. She was younger than we are now. Three teenagers home, just up the road. I could always tell when Melanie's talking to Tamara. You know how it is when girls talk to their sisters. It just sounds a little different. I could tell. I could tell when the door would, would swing open and Tamara would come in. Hello. Walking down from upstairs. But one day she got sick. I remember when Melanie called me and she said, Tamara's not right. She had a very fast-growing brain tumor. Two weeks later, she was buried. Two weeks from the time, as far as we knew, she was a healthy mother of teenage children. But she was ready. She was ready. She went with a glow to the grave. And we look forward to being with her again someday. Paul said, I'm ready. I'm now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I'm ready. Glorious words. How many saints down through the years do you suppose have said those words? I'm ready. I'm ready. Paul knew. He knew the sentence. He knew what was coming. He said, I'm ready. I'm ready to be offered. I'm ready to be poured out like a drink offering before the Lord. But I think of people who were not ready. Tonight, I just want to remind you that that is also a reality. And I have one quote here. Very well documented from a very famous man, a very famous philosopher, a very famous writer, a free thinker in his day. He was, 
he had the courage to go against common ideas and to write, and, and, and he was in, uh, very liberal in his ideas, and he's still heralded today, but not everyone focuses on his very well-documented dying weeks. His name was Voltaire, and Voltaire, he was an atheist, or at least uh, if there was a God, he was agnostic. He had, lots, he had very liberal and ungodly ideas and a very ungodly life filled with immorality of which he was very open about. He had quite an influence on the thinking in his day, but I want to tell you about his last few weeks. In the last few days to his infidel friends, his nurse documented and others documented things he would say to his other unbelieving buddies that had been thought it was so great during life. He said, be gone. It is you that have brought me to my present condition. He gnashed and raged at his friends. Get out of here. Be gone. He knew he was dying. He said, leave me. Be gone. What a wretched glory is this which you have procured for me. For two months, the account says he was tortured. At times, gnashing his teeth in rage against God and man. At other times, he would plead, oh, oh, Christ, oh, God, oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, I must die abandoned of God and men. He cried and his nurse is quoted to have said, After he died, this raging, gnashing, unbelieving man who began to believe in his death, but he didn't repent. He was not ready. He could not say like, Paul, I'm ready. He said, I'm not ready. Oh, I have to die. Abandon of God and abandon of men. His nurse said, for all the wealth of Europe, I don't ever again want to see another infidel die. I don't want to see an unbeliever die. It was horrible. Well, tonight, are you ready? Paul said in his last words, I'm ready. I'm ready to be offered. What about us? Are we ready? He had a tremendous confidence in the crown. Oh, glorious words, I'm ready. He said, I fought a good fight. I fought a good fight. Make no mistake about it, beloved. I don't know what your perception is of the Christian life, but let this speak to you tonight. I fought a good fight. That doesn't sound like I've coasted on a comfortable uh, trolley way to me. He says, I fought a good fight. This zealous saint of the Lord Jesus Christ, I fought a good fight. He poured his life into following and living for Jesus Christ. I fought a good fight. He said, I finished my course. Finished my course. It's like an athletic competition. There's a race. There's a goal. There's a finish line. Paul was in the final sprint. Sometimes when people are in a race, they get to the final sprint and they have a a last burst of energy. That's what I see in this beloved brother. Finish my course. I'm right there, Timothy. Just about across the line, I finished my course and I've kept the faith. I've kept. I've fought. I've finished. I've kept. Kept the faith. Praise God. Oh, that that could be said of each of us. I say that with all seriousness tonight, even as I look at my own life, oh God, help me to keep the faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, yes, but also the faith. The faith is the body of truth. It's the New Testament teaching. It's the word of God in its entirety. It's sound doctrine. It's the faith. I've kept the faith, he says. Jude says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation... That's what I wanted to write about, but I felt it more needful to earnestly contend for the faith, 
which was once delivered to the saints. There's something tonight that we have that's the faith. And it's worth keeping. Paul was sprinting toward the finish line. He said, I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. I've kept it. And henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness. There's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Can you imagine those reservations in heaven? Laid up a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me. And unto all them also that love his appearing. That love his appearing. I remember a, a brother when I was just a boy. I can remember him coming to California and preaching about loving his appearing. And I remember just such a simple illustration. I've remembered it my whole life. He talked about uh, a little boy who, uh, who his mother had to leave for a little while. And she had just made cookies and she put them in the cookie jar. And she said, now, now son, don't, please don't get any of the cookies. Well, the boy didn't get any cookies for a while. Then after a while, he finally gave in and he lifted the lid and, and he reached in to get a cookie and his mother came through the door. The door. And I remember that old brother said, you know, that boy loved his mother, but he didn't love her appearing. He wasn't glad to see her appearing right then. But beloved, tonight, Paul said, this crown is laid up not only for me, but for all them that love his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Is there anyone here with their hand in the cookie jar? Yeah, you, you want to follow the Lord? You love the Lord? You would say you love the Lord, but would you love his appearing? Would you love his appearing tonight? If your hand's in the cookie jar, you're not very excited if he would come or come for you quickly. I want you to consider some of the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards wrote many resolutions. He, he didn't live very long, but he lived a very intense life. And he wrote resolutions that are very edifying to read. He wrote some resolutions that, that had to do with, with life and death. And I want you to think about confidence in the crown. Where's your confidence? Jonathan Edwards said, Resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He said, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most possible, profitable way I possibly can. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolve that I will live so, so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolve to live so that at all times, as I think best in my devout frames and when I have the clearest notions of things of the gospel and of another world, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected that it should not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Think about that. Confidence in the crown. Paul said, I'm ready. What about you? Well, I want to hasten to, to finish this chapter and this letter. We have another section called Paul, a real normal man. I just want to highlight it real quickly. Look with me at verses 10 through 21. I think there's 17 people that Paul lists here by name, and, and he refers to others beyond that. My point that I want to make to you is that Paul was a normal man like we are. Yes, he was a chosen vessel. Yes, he was... He was uh, used mightily of the Lord. He was chosen as an apostle, but he was a man. He was not divine. He had needs. He had longings. He had desires. He had disappointments just like we do. And he lists 17 different people here uh, in different certain, he says, um, 
in, in verse 9 to Timothy, Timothy, do your diligence to come shortly unto me. You ever wonder if that ever happened? Did Timothy make it in time before Paul went and laid his head down for the sword to take him home? I don't know. I don't know for sure. Timothy, do your diligence to come shortly because he said, Demas has forsaken me. That's a subject of its own. You can read about Demas other places in the Bible. Demas has forsaken me. Why? You don't have to guess. He says, having loved this present world. Demas gave it up. Why? He loved this present world. And he's departed unto Thessalonica and Cretans to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, those others were not necessarily leaving because of this present world. They may have had errands. Maybe Paul even sent them on errands. He says, only Luke is with me. Good old loyal Luke, the beloved physician who had traveled on Paul's second missionary journey, the, the one who wrote the gospel of Luke and also wrote the, its sequel, the Acts of the Apostles. Brother Luke, Luke was still there with Paul. Only Luke is with me. And then he says something very interesting. Take Mark and bring him with thee because he's profitable to me for the ministry. Remember, Demas has forsaken me, he said. There was a time when Paul would have said, Mark's forsaken me. Mark departed from them. And at the end of Acts 15, you find Paul and Barnabas got into a pretty sharp difference about that. Mark was Barnabas' nephew. And, and Barnabas was the son of consolation. Remember, he had patience with Paul when others didn't trust Paul. And he had that same kind of a spirit toward Mark. Give him another chance. But at that point, Paul wasn't willing to do that. And so there was an expansion of the ministry. And Paul took Silas and Barnabas took Mark and headed to Cyprus. But now it's years later, and Paul's getting ready to die, and he said, bring Mark before I die. He's one of the men I'd like to see. He's profitable in the ministry. Mark had returned to usefulness. Maybe he went home. Maybe he had a little gap. But I want you to see the difference in Demas and Mark. Both men departed, but one came back. Take Mark and bring him with thee. He's profitable to me for the ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. Uh, the cloak that I left with Carpus. I wonder if it was getting cold in prison. He said, that cloak would you bring with me? And the books, but especially the parchments. The parchments were, parchment is, is skin. It's like sheep or goat skin made into, it was a very high quality writing utensil. And Paul had parchments. It, it was probably the Septuagint, some of the Old Testament books. He said, bring some of the books. Maybe that was some of Paul's own writings or other writings, but especially the parchments. Bring the parchments, Timothy. I'm here in prison, but I want to use my time well. I'd, I'd, like, I'd like the books and the parchments if you could bring them. And bring the cloak if you can. It's cold in here. Paul was a real man. He was a real human man. And then he mentioned Alexander, the coppersmith, has done me much evil. Be careful of him, Timothy. He was a real man. There were, there were real issues in his life. He mentions others. But he, and he said, uh, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, it may not be laid to their charge. Verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. God had a purpose and God wasn't going to let Paul go until he's ready for him to go. And so Paul yet was, was allowed to live at that point so that the Gentiles might hear. And he was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. He said, and the Lord shall preserve me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his Heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, a real normal man. He mentions others like Prisca and Aquila. Here she's called Prisca. Other places she's called Priscilla. It's a short form of, of the name Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila, he mentions them. Uh, greet them. He sends greetings to different ones. The house of Onesiphorus, 
think the brother mentioned Onesiphorus today. They're the ones that had addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Priscilla and Aquila, he says in Romans 16, that this couple, he said, unto whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles thank this couple. These folks had an impact on the church. He said, they've laid down their, their, their own necks for my life. They were quite a couple. Please greet Priscilla and Aquila. Paul was a real normal man. He was a real man. And he had relationships. He had people that he loved and cared about. And he mentions different ones. One brother's left at Miletum sick. And then in verse 21, he says, do thy diligence to come before winter. I heard this brother one time. But when I was a boy, there was an old white-haired brother. And every fall, he would preach. Or every summer, maybe. I think every fall, he would preach on that text. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Because in his... In his way, his simple way, this old brother was trying to encourage, don't wait. He was kind of borrowing the context of Paul telling Timothy to come before winter, but he was talking about salvation. Do your diligence to come before winter. Winter is coming. The winter of death. Come before winter. Come while you have a chance. That old brother would preach year after year. Paul was a real man. He had feelings like anyone else. Well, I want to go to the final verse here tonight. The final verse... The final section, we've called this final thought an appeal to attitude. An appeal to attitude. Verse 22, the Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Isn't that an interesting way to close? You could really say these are the last words of Paul that we have recorded. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Your spirit, I call this an appeal to attitude. The spirit is that, that sentient element in man, that by which he perceives, reflects, feels, and desires. It's the mental and moral qualities in man. It's his mental disposition. I like to boil it down and say it's kind of like your attitude. Your spirit, may the grace of the Lord be with your spirit. Now, the Bible speaks about your spirit a number of times. Jesus told a couple of his disciples one time, they're a little hot-headed. He said, you don't know what manner of spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy men's lives. I came to save them. I think about Solomon. He said in the Proverbs that, that he that has knowledge is, spares his words and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. I'm thinking about this last final appeal to your attitude. Young people, don't miss this. I think this is critical. Your spirit... I want you to think about it. Our brother in the opening devotion, our younger brother, the other morning stood up here and shared about Daniel. And he spoke about Daniel's spirit. The Bible tells us a couple of things there. It says that in, in Daniel chapter 5, for as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams and so forth were found in Daniel, an excellent spirit. I think God looks for excellent spirits today. In Daniel 6, it says, Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. What's an excellent spirit? What did Paul mean? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I want you to think about that as we close tonight. I'm thinking about your attitude. Paul said to the Galatian church, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. To Philemon, when he wrote to Philemon and told him to pardon Onesimus, he ended that letter with these words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, Philemon. Your spirit. You know, the Bible tells us about Caleb. These 10 spies came back and 
And, and they all said, it's a nice land, but there's no way we can do it. And they discouraged the hearts of the people. But the Bible says that, that Caleb had another spirit. Caleb had another spirit. What about Mary? I think of that beautiful young woman when she realized all that was involved that the angel was telling her and, and even the complications, how's this going to be? And finally she realized and she said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. I'm thinking about an excellent spirit. In short, we're talking about a, a spirit-controlled spirit. May the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit in the days and weeks and months ahead. Your attitude, it makes all the difference. You may face complications. You may face questions. You might face things that we talked about the other night in the foreground. Maybe it's in your family or in your church setting that you are, are confusing or a little perplexing to you. Maybe you're not even sure if they're quite right. I want to encourage you, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Look at the horizon. Don't get too bogged down. Keep a good attitude. God can direct a good attitude. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. A few years ago, I wrote uh, these words, very similar to what I have here. And, and I had a burden for some of the young people in, in, in our setting. And I just wrote this. I want to share it with you tonight. It was a vision I believe that God gave me and I still have it tonight. I have a vision of an army of hundreds and thousands of young men and young women who have a living faith in Jesus Christ, who have repented and been set free from their past sin and have been boldly baptized into Jesus Christ and his kingdom and are glad to be a part of his kingdom, who are not ashamed to step out in sincere, biblical separation from this sinful American society and who are amazing examples of godliness and of love and of purity and humility and unselfish Christian service who lock arms and hearts in prayer and in love for the Bible, the Word of God, and will not compromise with watered-down doctrine, who sound out loudly with solid preaching of the Word and with hymns and lives of joy and devotion and praise as they march toward victory. May God bless you as you pursue, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. <clears throat> I'd like to soon sing one verse. I, I looked in your songbook. I don't think it's there. I'm thinking quite a few of you know it. I asked a little bit. The song, I'll praise my maker while I've breath. Could we sing one verse of that shortly? I'll praise my maker while I've breath. And when my, when my voice is lost in death, praise shall attend my nobler powers. My, I'm not sure if I can quote it all. We'll see if we, we can get through it. But I want you to think about it. My days of praise shall ne'er be passed while life and, and hope and being last and immortality endures. The reason I want to sing that is that hymn was written by Isaac Watts. And as we conclude tonight, I want, but it was adapted and, and, and used much by John Wesley. Now, John Wesley was a very devoted evangelist in England back in the 1700s. And John Wesley lived a, a, a very full and energetic life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the history account of his deathbed is much different than that of Voltaire. John Wesley, who was sitting up the final day he died, and those that were gathered around him, and, and John tried to get up. He said, maybe I'll get up. But, and, and they were able to set him up in bed, and he began to sing, I'll praise my maker while I've breath, and when my voice is lost in death, and so forth. Raise your hand if you're somewhat familiar with this song. 
Good. Maybe you can help me with the words. I can't get it all right now. But, but the, the account in history said as this old saint was going to his death in the last hours, he kept trying to sing it. He hardly had the strength left. I'll praise my maker while I have breath. And then later, as the day went on, he, he'd start it again. I'll, I'll praise. I'll praise my maker while I have breath. I'll praise. I'll praise. And then he died and went home. Oh, what a glorious way to die. Tonight, are you ready to be offered? Think about Voltaire. Oh, I'm abandoned of God and man. The fear that gripped that unbelieving man who now was a believer, but his heart was hardened and he was not able to repent. And he went to hell to an eternity apart from God. And then think about John. I'll praise while I breath. I'll praise, I'll praise, I'll praise, and then just continued on praising in glory. What a blessing. My friend, young brother and sister, your last words could be tonight. We've tried to look this week at the last words of the beloved Apostle Paul. But your last words could be tonight. My last words could be tonight. I urge you to be ready. If there's anyone tonight that is not ready to be offered, is not ready to be offered to meet the Lord, even right now, I, I urge you, don't stop. Don't stop until you're ready tonight. Whether you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior or whether you've backslidden and you're at a place that you shouldn't be, Maybe like Demas. Maybe you turned around like Mark. There's opportunity tonight. Never had it right or simply have doubts and fears and a lack of clarity. Or if God has moved in some way in your heart this week, you would like to make a commitment to him. You can do that. There's opportunity. There's many opportunities. There's many ways to respond to conviction. But tonight, in this setting, and in this situation, as we close, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to whatever conviction the Lord has laid upon your heart. So we're soon going to sing a verse of that song, and then I'm going to turn it over to the brother. And if the Lord is laying a conviction on your heart that you want to respond to, if you want to deal with something, whether it's salvation or whether it's something that you would like to deal with or even commit to, maybe higher ground that you want to commit to tonight before your time is to be offered, you have that opportunity tonight. May God bless you. Let's sing together. I'll praise my maker while I've breath.